Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Hey, Alec, how are you doing, mate? I'm good. I'm good. The big question is, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm not too bad. I, I'm, I'm recovering slightly, if you can't, I'm, if you can't tell from my voice. Um, so I went to Glastonbury last week, which was uh, amazing, but I've clearly been belting out Elton John's classics too, too <laughs> loudly, so I'm struggling. What about you? Were you watching it from home? I watched some of it. I was really envious that, you know, you, you got tickets and I did not. So I was kind of sat just stewing at home, thinking about you watching Elton John. But I mean, we were meant to record this episode two, three days ago, but Jack's voice said it's so husky. I don't think anyone would have enjoyed that. Yeah, no, we thought we'd save everyone at home the the despair of listening to me. I mean, you couldn't have heard me. So, <laughs> but yeah, um, no, it's, a, it's, it's nice to be back recording another episode. And I think today in particular is is one of the, the really interesting topics um or even even more so than some of the other ones you've done but for me personally so yeah. today we are going to be talking about data sovereignty right as a term which is i think it's a bit of a loaded term because it means a lot of different things to different people um and i think it's one that's hard to pin down sometimes yeah and i think when you suggested this topic i was a bit like oh you know compared to the metaverse compared to nfts web3 blockchain all these kind of like sexy exciting words the idea of like data sovereignty which, which in my mind is, is just data ownership doesn't sound that sexy and doesn't sound that appealing no. to listen to but then you kind of i mean we have mentioned it a lot so like we, we did just have to talk about it to kind of define what it is because it's such an ambiguous term that's so pivotal and like in web3 but then you kind of like look into the history of it and some of the kind of the, the big news stories that have come out and it is quite interesting like there actually is quite a lot of interesting dynamics to this term data sovereignty or data ownership yeah definitely i think um I mean, it shows that we've touched on the concepts that we might we might mention today in lots of the other episodes, but just not under the term uh, data sovereignty. And yeah, you're right. I think it can feel sometimes like it's something that's come out of thin air in the last few years. But actually, the the things that have led us here and and to some of the problems with data sovereignty and what what people are trying to solve in Web three, these are things that have been brewing for you know 20, 30, 40 years. So um, yeah, why don't we get into it? Why don't we go for our our normal starting point and and try and define this this term so uh i'll let you go first alec because i think you've got a, a nice short one today yeah so your voice is still recovering so i think you're going to try and limit how much you talk today maybe 
Um, but yeah, so I guess data sovereignty, first of all, in my mind, when you said that, I didn't even know what the term meant. So I kind of think of data sovereignty as data ownership, like how you own the data. And I think the definition for, for both of those sovereignty and ownership is quite simply the legal rights and control over data, over the data. So it kind of in, that includes you know the responsibility for data, privacy, security, you know, in, in compliance with like relevant relevant laws and all that. And I think in quite simple terms, if you you know you own the data, you have the right to control and use it, and you know others need to come to you for for, for permission to use it. And I think that that's probably how I would define that. Anything you want to add there, Jack? No, I think I think that that's that's a good definition. I think. Um... I agree. Data sovereignty is about um, data ownership. Um, the problem that for me is, you know, then you say, what does ownership mean? Because um, I think it's it's potentially a legally gray area and what ownership means exactly. Um, but if you th- if you think about it in terms of privacy and control, I think that that is more tangible to me. So ownership being uh, essentially having control over. Uh, who has my data? How 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 it gets shared with with third parties? Um, whether or not I am in control of permissioning access to people. So if I mean, I, am I the individual that's consenting to sharing some data with a company, a website, um, another person, or is it a, a third party? Is it a social media company that's make, that's making that decision for me? And I think that's kind of at the heart of the the whole concept. Yeah, and I think you said in one of the previous episodes, you're like what does it mean? Like, don't I own my own data? And I think a lot of people will be asking that question, like, don't they own their own data? And I think hopefully, as we kind of go through this episode, you'll start to realize what it really means to own your data and understand that in a lot of the applications and use cases that you're probably experiencing day to day now, you don't own your data. And I think the most important thing for me that I hope to get from this episode is why it's important that you do own your own data and why there's such a push in this kind of Web3 agenda or vision to, to move towards that kind of um, paradigm, I guess. Yeah, I think yeah, it's kind of a it's a, a practical thing, right? It's like, do I in practice own my data? Because that's what mm-hmm. I, I care about. Do I in practice, um, you know, have what looks like sovereignty? What looks like me having the decisions to make uh, or make, make make my own decisions about about data? Yeah. Um, but you know, as we said, so this is something that's been been brewing as a problem for a long time. Maybe we just recap the history of data in the internet. So. You know, in the very, very early days, or even even before the internet was widely used, I think uh, from from what I've read, most you know data wasn't widely transferred or shared around. It was something that was very much localized. In in, in you know, you individually you'd store your data. It might well, not yeah. even be digital, right? Um, yeah, you go back like I'm thinking like if you go back to how we usually start these things like prehistorically, how you like locally yeah. store things. You know, if we go back to UG. Uh, you know, a distant or uh, depending on who you ask, maybe not too distant caveman relative of Jack. I mean, his brain is the biggest data storage going, you know, and it's very easy to understand, you know, what ownership is there. If it's in his head, he owns it. But you know, eventually it gets quite smart and things go from his brain to symbols on clay tablets and say, OK, well, that's now portable data. What, what happens then? Who owns the portable data? And I guess ownership in that context is your physical ownership. If you have it in your possession, if you have it in your hands or some like stored somewhere that, that you own and you can access, that, that that is ownership. But I think what you're alluding to is as we move 
towards like you know the digital age it's not as simple because you, know, you don't have that physical possession aspect yeah exactly 100 i think um that's the key right is that with the internet age came digitalization um so there wasn't much of a question about ownership because you just have paper documents in your in in your uh, your filing cabinet or in, in in the company you'd have it you know in, in your internal systems um, and then with the digital age and and you know hitting the 1990s and, and kind of much wider spread use of the internet this is where the model moved from okay everything is stored in-house or, or you know in, in my bedroom um, for my personal files to you know the advent of things like cloud storage so that was you know what what really took off or started taking off in, in the early 90s I know that cloud storage didn't exactly become widespread initially but by the time of you know aws being launched in 2006 that was a, a very common concept is to push your data to, to someone else to store that so that was kind of for me that's one of the starting points of this whole problem is that we moved from data being you know distributed in a sense it's with each individual owner to um it being stored in in these large central entities like your amazons and, and your your kind of big cloud providers yeah, and I think that, that that physical ownership that we kind of you think of in like say you know pre-internet again like physical forms like paper documents, photographs you you physically own it and the possession equals the ownership. And I don't think maybe in the early digital age it was it was too difficult to comprehend if you own the hard drive, the computer, the data that's stored locally there, it still fits within that remit of possession. And when you get to the bit about cloud computing, like I'm like, like it, it, I only realized like a couple of years ago what cloud computing was. And it's kind of obvious when you say it. It's just like someone else's computer, right? It's like it's just like yeah, someone else has their computer locally, and you're just accessing it. I always kind of thought, okay, is it these distributed like things happening in in the internet? But no, it's as simple yeah. as that. And I think as you're saying, like you know, data began to be digitized and stored on these servers. It's just stored on someone someone else's computer, right? Yeah, uh, but I think it's interesting because, you know, when I go back, I mean, 2006, I was only like 10 years old, but I do, I still remember this idea of cloud, um, what, you know, hearing about the cloud and it was always couched in kind of a, uh, people were very wary of it. And that was, you know, coming from a place, I think, of, of what we now would call data sovereignty. You're thinking, well, right. how am I in control of data if it's in the cloud? And I think it's similar to, to what's happened with blockchain, you know, because, uh, for the, for the longest time, people would look at blockchain as, uh, you know, oh, that's a, distrib a distributed uh, database. I'm not going to put my stuff on that. It's, you know, if it's distributed, if, if it's mm. in all these different locations around the world, if it's transparent. Um, but now we're kind of hitting that maturity curve where, you know, people got much more comfortable with the cloud and now people are getting more comfortable with, with blockchain. <laughs> the difference being that I think with blockchain, people are trying to, to solve the data sovereignty aspect of it, whereas cloud was kind of one of the first things that was maybe pushing us to the problems yeah i mean that's a good point and i think like this this kind of some of these these trust issues um were kind of maybe emphasized by like you know the dot-com boom the fact that there was these like companies that were, were working on this kind of server model of of harvesting data i think they often said like data is the new oil i think that's a term that people mm -hmm. tend to use and like the, the sheer amount that they were collecting and storing and that users you know didn't actually know was like incredible and i think at the time no one could probably have understood how much data they were going to have and like, no one kind of you know it's always one of those things that regulation is always behind the technology because you don't know how these things are going to evolve and i know we're going to talk about regulation a bit later but no one really knew how to control this right mm -hmm. yeah and uh that's that's a really good point i mean there was a big uh 
gold rush or oil rush because yeah you know people would say data is the new oil and um another another phrase i like to think of is um you know data as a commodity is um and this is not my quote this is from a shout out to, to wei Zhang for this one i think but it's kind of powering the um if if electricity was powering the industrial um, revolution and mechanical evolution then revolution then uh, data is powering now the analytical revolution. So it's mm. the power to analyze complex systems and and and, and break things down and gives you know, that was that was clearly seen as um, being hugely valuable. And you know people also took advantage of it. So I think this is where the idea of things like data brokers came came into play. I think in the early um, early two thousands. I don't know how, how much do you know about data brokers? Is that is that something you've come across? I was just about to say I don't know what data brokers are, so I would like you to ah okay okay me, please cool yeah no no definitely um I mean I I actually first heard the term from there's a really really funny uh, and and scary video from John Oliver on his uh, on his show mm. he talks for about twenty five minutes about this idea of uh, data brokers and he quotes someone else who calls them uh, which I like as a definition he says data brokers are the middlemen of surveillance capitalism. So essentially, these are these are companies which will collect and aggregate data on individuals from many, many different sources um, and then sell those th that, that data on uh, in larger data sets that profile individuals. So, you know, examples that we these the example of a, a data broker that you would be familiar with is something like a credit checking agency. Mm, so when okay. you when you apply for a loan, you know they they are a data broker in they they aggregate data from many different sources and then sell that to whatever the the uh, the, the bank is that you're applying for a loan. But then there are all these other kinds of um, slightly slightly murkier examples of data brokers, which may may or may not be kind of in the in the dark markets, um, yeah. collecting data from the internet and profiling individuals. And I think like, yeah, when you think of it on an individual basis, like I'm like, okay, how much does Facebook actually know about me? And then think, okay, well, if you can start to aggregate what Facebook knows about me, what Instagram knows about me, what, you know, TikTok, all these apps that I don't use knows about me, that is it's quite a lot of data, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite scary that people have the power to be like a central point to collect all these different data sources, align them and be like, okay, well, this is Alec. This is all the things you like, you know, the, how many dog videos that I'm liking every day. That would be scary. I would not want that information to get out. Yeah. Well, that, that I mean, you brought it on to kind of the next phase of it all as well, I think, by mentioning social media, because they have kind of, I think, inadvertently become almost like a data broker themselves, mm -hmm. not necessarily that they're selling it, but they're essentially a broker to advertisers because they have all this user information and they can use that to profile the users on the platform. So, you know, everyone is familiar now with um, receiving adverts for something you feel like you talked about 10 minutes yeah, ago yeah. With, with a friend, right? Have you, um, have you read the book Chaos Monkeys? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, oh, man, it's incredible. It's about the, the guy who was kind of like the, the product manager and maybe not pioneer, but pioneer, to an extent pioneer of Facebook's kind of uh, advertising for, for revenue model. Um, and it was like, oh, you, you've got to read it. Would recommend to anyone. But okay. like one of the main aspects is about the, the data aggregation and how like Facebook was kind of this firewall where they didn't want to use, you know, you know how cookies work. Like it's it's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. The cookies that you accept and say, you know, when I go on a page, I'm going to use it. Well, for every web page, you actually don't just contact that web page. When you go on like, say, Facebook and you're using all the buttons and everything like that, there's actually like, you know, 
I don't know, tens, if not hundreds of different companies that are actually contributing to that, that web page. And each of them has like a, a cookie based system effectively. So all of them can access the data, like every button engagement, everything you do, each of the companies can aggregate the data. It's not just Facebook that gets access to this data. There's loads of companies that access the data whenever you use like a, an app or a web page. And his, the book is, like I say, is absolutely fascinating. It's about how Facebook kind of moved, used the kind of the buttons that they put into the general internet and kind of broke down the firewalls and started to aggregate like vast amounts of data to better inform the advertising models. It's really interesting, Jack. I would recommend wow. it's quite related to this stuff. Okay. Yeah, you know, I'll have to. I mean, my, my attention span's short, right? So I've my recommendation for you, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it, but do you remember the Black Mirror episode where... Um, yes where they they basically they were the police were trying to track down a criminal i think he'd driven a car away or something it's a long time ago um and the kind of moral of the story was the social media company which was you know a very very thinly veiled version of facebook um because of the data profiling they they were you know so so much further ahead of um of, of tracking this than the police were because they they had so much more information vastly mm. more because they're, they're, they're getting it from all these different sources on the internet. Um, and I watched it and I thought, you know, this, this feels very much like it's probably true, right? If you, if you asked a social media company to track someone down, they'd probably do it more quickly than the police would now. Yeah. So I thought you were going to reference the, um, the, the other episode where it's like everyone has that, that social kind of media score where for every action mm -hmm. you get like a positive or a negative and like, it's like the aggregate of all these different kind of apps and interfaces to, to overview like who you are as a person. And I, I thought that's what you're going to reference. But yeah, I do remember that episode and yeah, that's quite scary, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I think that, yeah, you're kind of touching on like the, one of the really scary end states, which I think people are very, very worried about is the, um, kind of social credit score system when that mm. when that data gets linked to your your finances um and that's you know i think that's something we'll cover in a future episode as well because it's you know it's, it's it's whole it's his whole um other topic but um you know we said we, we said we'd also talk about regulation so kind of after we've had the rise of the social media platforms i mean i think gdpr is the next the next landmark stop on on the trip right yeah, what does GDPR even stand for? Like, I know what it is, but what does it actually stand for? Uh, I think I had to Google it as well just to check um, <laughs> all these acronyms we have in Web three as well. Um, so it's it stands for General Data Protection Regulation, um, and it was it was in, enacted in the EU in I think twenty eighteen. Um, and I, I don't again I don't know the full context, but I think in part this was in response to things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the growing prevalence of these data brokers um yeah. and also the social media giants so yeah i mean that 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 to me was like the first real pushback and you think 2018 is a long time after these things started happening like 25 years yeah it's and always the, the way, first real it? pushback it's always the way like regulation always plays catch up with technology like it that you never know like what the i mean you see it, you see it now with regulators only now starting to try and to get a hold of like crypto and all this kind of stuff like they're always so far behind but it's just the way you can never predict how a technology is going to evolve and you know i kind of i do have some well i say quite a lot of experience with gdpr like i, I 
you know, I work in product and software and like all the first questions always like, where's the data stored? Like, are we GDPR compliant? Like, you know, it's quite a scary thing. Our companies who are, who are building in kind of software are always worried about GDPR compliance because, you know, there's so many fines out there and like, it's, it, it, yeah, it's quite interesting. So I guess the whole premise of GDPR, like a, a high level is to declare that individuals, they, they own their personal data, right? And they have the right to know how it's used, how it's stored and how it's shared. I guess that's it mm. at a high level, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm when you sorry when you said uh, the first question we always ask, I was going to say, well, maybe that should have been what does GDPR stand for? But um, <laughs> I know um, what, it, not what it stands for. I, acronym, <laughs> acronym just make you sound like you know what you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a TBA. Um, <laughs> so you, you mentioned it's about personal data. So what kind of thing do you know what qualifies as personal data? What, what does that refer to? Are you going to say PII? Well, I, I, it's another acronym. So you just got to try to be funny and get PII in there. So I think personal data is like personal identifying information, right? So it, it's things like my address, Alec Burns, my age, my date of birth, something that's unique to me. Probably not so much along the lines of, um, I don't know. I was going to say location, but it is. I'm trying to think. I feel like everything in a way can be tracked. It could be mm. like directly kind of... Um, worked out from your back to your identity right like everything can be aggregated to your identity so i'm trying to think what doesn't qualify as pii yeah i i when i was doing some research for this as well i i noticed that i think the definition involves saying something like that can be used to directly or indirectly identify someone so what can be you you know anything in theory could be used to indirectly identify someone and something i hadn't appreciated until i was working on a project a few years ago um was the idea of um, some 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 data that might be innocuous and might seem well, okay, mm. you can't link that to me. In the right context, could be you know. So even even something that's quite um, uh, innocent could end up being something that can link back to you if it's in the wrong. So you know, if they can put uh, yeah. two things together, I mean, maybe a class example would be like a a cash payment in a store. You'd think that's how can you link that payment amount yeah. back to me? But if there's a if there's a CCTV camera, then it becomes something that you can. Yeah, yeah. So I know like a good example is so Jack every single day at twelve midday will go buy a ham sandwich from MS every single day. And you're like, you know, an individual purchase like that, it doesn't add up. Like it, but when you say every single day I know he's purchasing, you can start to associate, you know, the fact that I know exactly twelve p.m. he will be spending exactly the price of a ham sandwich maybe i can start to link those transactions and link it back to your identity that is a very good and sad indictment as an example <laughs> of me so thank you for bringing that up <laughs> it's actually it's chicken but you know we'll, oh it's we'll sorry mate that's what i do <laughs> um yeah um, like it's, it's one of the points here is that like it's so broad like you've given kind of a vague term of what pii is and we've just said it's really hard for information to, to not be related to PII, especially in the GDPR compliance, if it's directly and indirectly. And I think this is why companies are so scared, well, not scared, but like kind of um, on form when it comes to GDPR now, because they're so worried that they're violating it because it, it's such, such broad reaching, right? And I guess what we're going to say is there are lots of violations. I think mm -hmm. I saw a stat that was like 33% of global consumers have experienced a, a GDPR data breach. And that, that's just the ones that we know about. Like, my question would be like, how the hell do they monitor this? Like, how do they, how do you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I guess the take home message there for me personally is that 
the the idea of data sovereignty is much broader than you might think. So I think sometimes you might think of it as okay, just this is control over the the, the directly identifiable data that is really sensitive, but mm. it actually applies to all these other things that are indirect. Um, and not just about identifying you, but just you know, in general, what what things you might want to, uh, to to have to have control over, like your personal files and things. And yeah, as you said, like the can I come on to like the idea of the, the a number of breaches that have happened of of companies. I mean, there's they, they, I'm sure they don't want to store this data. In some cases, if you're not a data broker and you're not profiting from it, if you're just mm. a company, if you're just a company with customers trying to do business. Um, the fact that you currently have to store so much data and you have these kind of crown jewel data sets, they call them, that, you know, if compromised will, 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 will cause your customers major harm. I, I don't think they, people want to, companies don't want to store that. And you've had so many examples, like I've got a couple of the big ones, the kind of famous ones. I mean, the Yahoo one from 2013 and 14, because they had yeah. two in consecutive years. And the second one, I think it says there was a billion user accounts affected in some way, like personal Ooh. Information, password information is unbelievable. The scale. Who's using Yahoo in 2013? Like, I, I think they deserve it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. They, they must have. I mean, maybe, maybe the other six billion were doing something else. <laughs> that's crazy. They're one billion users. My God, that's that's unbelievable. Yeah, and then, you know, so that that's. I guess there's two separate things. There. So one is the um. The companies who just have to store your data for doing business that are a massive target and you know just by you being a customer you then become a risk right the other one is then the more uh intentionally nefarious use of your data which is kind of what we've talked about already but mm. i do want to bring it back to the cambridge analytica idea because this gets to the heart of consent because you know people's data was taken from facebook and i know it's like in some sense a public forum that people were using, but um, people didn't consent to it being used in that way, I'm sure. I mean, I, I imagine it wasn't part of the terms of service that mm. your data can be used to try and potentially influence elections. And that was, that's the event that put it in everyone's, in the forefront of everyone's mind. Yeah, it's crazy. And, I, and my thing with, with a lot of these is like, how, how do they find out about these things? It's not obvious to me how Facebook is using my data, for example. And I guess it's things like audits, which, you know, sometimes can come from governments, you know, saying we have to audit this company that publicly listed all these kind of things, which happens, I imagine, fairly regularly, where it's all about process, where they have to show they have a functioning process that properly protect, protects the data, properly, you know, uh, um, collects consent on how they're using the data and all, all these kind of things. Um, I guess, like, one of the things that, one of the big finds that I was quite aware of where that you know the process wasn't in place for this was Meta, where Meta was fine. I think it was one one point two billion, something like that, or one billion, one point two billion. And that was purely for transferring personal data from the EU to the US without adequate data protections, which is just it's an unbelievable amount, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that, that's that is is shocking. Um but it also highlights the difficulty of, of doing things in the internet where you have to deal with different jurisdictions, much like in Web3 and blockchain, yeah. you know, where it's a global system. So if data is being transferred all the time between different countries, different legal jurisdictions, then you have to account for all these different things. I mean, that may, maybe is a nice segue to, 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 to the Web3 um, current state of play, right? Where so having seen everything that's happened in web two, having seen all, you know, the rise of social media, um, 
all that the data breaches of large companies mm. then you know we've had gdpr but then web3 is kind of uh from the non-regulatory side from the the tech world is trying to solve some of these problems from the ground up so i mean I, what, what, for you what are the what are the hallmarks of what is happening in in, in web3 right now for in data sovereignty I think, yeah, you're seeing like a lot of these companies that are kind of trying to push Well, they, like you say, if they, they, if they don't have a benefit in owning the data, you know, obviously Facebook and people that push advertising, there's a benefit to them in, in having like being the, the single point for all the data to be collected and stored and analyzed. But like you say, these companies that don't necessarily have that as part of their business model, it's a liability for them. And I guess one of the big things that you're seeing in these Web3 companies is data is more and more frequently being pushed to the user where the user is responsible for their own data. I think we're seeing more and more that data is being stored on devices and backed up in devices that are owned by the user, for example. Like imagine rather than all my you know images and photos for Facebook being stored on the Facebook servers, they're stored locally on my mobile device. And when I use the, the you know the web3 equivalent of facebook i just you know access those images and like those images are pulled directly from my phone so i guess this is one of the one of the the, the ways in which web3 is get, getting around this right is they're pushing more and more to the user and the responsibilities on the user yeah exactly and i think um a, a good tangible example of this i'm sure we've mentioned this one uh briefly in a previous episode i think i couldn't remember the name back then but um so Tim Berners-Lee, our friend who we mentioned is kind of the founding father of, of the internet and the World Wide Web. Mm. So, you know, we, we mentioned his dissatisfaction with the way the web's gone, all these problems with data sovereignty. I mean, he's been talking about this, the, the idea of, um, I think, called open data and the, and the ability for people to own their data properly to control permissioning to, to different companies. He's been talking about it since the early 2000s. Um, and he is building this 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 company uh, and, and a product called solid where it's kind of exactly that principle where your data as an individual gets stored in one of these called solid pods um, mm. so you are you are individually you have you you have physical uh, not physical control but you have um the, let's say digital physical control of uh of your data in a certain place yeah. and then whenever you, you you need to access a service log into something you're permissioning access to that service for a given period of time we're given access rights maybe just certain bits of the information not not everything so he's kind of um he, he's he's pushing that forward now and that i would class that as a a, a very much a web3 initiative um sure yeah and i think yeah so like to get back to the well to stay on course with the web3 stuff i guess one of the main motivations of the, the web3 paradigm shift is to address the privacy and security issues that we're seeing in in web2 like all these gdpr kind of um lawsuits and breaches that, that are happening but like my big problem not problem with this but i think some of the resistance to this is like we've just said you're pushing a lot of the responsibility onto users to manage you know their own data have it on their, their own data and that's inconvenient like there's this whole kind of i guess contrast between um privacy and security that web3 promises and that kind of um, contending with the convenience and the user experience like do i want to actually be responsible for all my data you know sometimes it's convenient if i forget my password if i mess up on my end that facebook is kind of liable and they have you know lots of people working in the background to make sure that i have the best experience to keep me on the platform 
you know do i actually want to be responsible for that do i understand what that actually mm -hmm. means that's a lot of liability being pushed to me which is good for the companies maybe but is it good for me yeah 100% agree i think um it's 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 something where web3 so how we how we talked about blockchain previously as a kind of credible alternative for payments and you know doing micropayments where you get more autonomy and managing your funds managing your own keys and things like that it gives you the option to do that but it doesn't it doesn't prohibit you from also having third-party custody if you want it having insurance having mm -hmm. you know adding but yeah you know not getting rid of all the middlemen just giving people the option to if they want and i think the same is true with the data sovereignty aspect i mean i think you said as well in a previous episode like uh people might well be happy to give away their data if they're getting you know remunerated for it if they're getting paid to do it they, they might just be cut people might just be angry that they're not consenting and they might be you know not really care too much especially if there's a small incentive for them to to share data with companies um and when you start adding in incentives then it becomes something where companies will actually compete you know i think i think that's the difference in that model I mean, that doesn't sound like me. I don't think I said that. <laughs> I'm joking. You are right. Like I say, most people, even after this episode, probably still won't care. Maybe someone cares too much about the ownership and care about the, the, you know, the privacy and the security concerns because of the convenience aspect until you start to make things tangible, until you start to say, well, you know, Facebook makes one penny per every megabyte of data they have on you. Why don't you make that one penny instead? You know, if companies start like have this kind of the shared monetization model with the users, like that empowers the users. And there's like a, a lot of benefit that can be had to that. And I think, you know, one more thing that I want to say on this um, is, you know, we talked about the privacy versus convenience of shifting the data ownership from the large corporations to the individuals. I think a, another benefit around this is also the security aspect. If, you know, you have one Facebook that has the data for 5 billion people or whatever it is now, whatever crazy number of Facebook users there are right now. I mean, although they're going to have, you know, very heavy security protocols to protect that data, that's a, there's a big, large attack surface there, right? There's a lot of reason that people would want to invest a lot of time to break down those, those kind of firewalls and get into that Facebook repo. They've got 5 billion people's worth of data. That's a, a lot of wonga. But if, you know, you start to shift this to, the individuals i've got one person's worth of data on my on my phone with the not similar security at all but like a high degree of security maybe that off puts some like offsets some of the the security concerns because it's all about attack surface right like i my data individually is not worth that much is it worth the time of someone trying to hack into my phone maybe not yeah exactly i think i think that is maybe the key in how you distinguish what web 2 does for data sovereignty compared to web 3 in web 2 you very much have this client server model where you as a user are a client you request data from a server which sits in a large company has massive data sets that are that these crown jewel data sets that are very valuable to attackers and attackers have a few large um uh, sources of data to exploit you know they're, they're highly highly incentivized to attack it to, to put resources into attacking it whereas as you say in web3 moving that moving the data out to the client and, and keeping data client side means that now they have to attack everyone in the world and, and it becomes exactly. much, much less, much, much less uh, profitable to do that. It also reduces your risk as an individual as well. So. Yeah. And I will just say on the kind of the, the privacy and security versus convenience and user experience, like I've messed up on this. I, you know, I had a, a, a crypto wallet and it was, a, I should have known like it was um, 
non-custodial arrangement. So I had the keys on my end. And it was one of those, I think I had like 500 pounds, 600 pounds, which is a lot of money, you know. And it was in my crypto wallet. I just didn't think about it for a long time, like a year or two years. And, you know, you don't have to worry about it too much. So my phone, like, it's fine. I don't have to think about these things. And then I updated my phone. I, like, I changed my phone and put everything across and then wiped the old phone, downloaded the apps, tried to sign in. I was like, oh, my God, the keys were on my previous phone. That's been wiped. I was like, oh, crap. Like, I, I got the benefits of the security and the ownership and all the sovereignty and stuff. And then when it came to, like, the, the responsibility there was for me to realize that, I was responsible for the keys and I had to move them across and all this kind of stuff. And even me, who's like aware of the space and I know what a non-custodial wallet is. I know how this stuff works, but still I messed up and I lost that money. And that is just completely inaccessible. Contacted the company. They couldn't do anything, obviously, because it's on my end. That's the whole point of this. But there are genuine concerns around this. Like some people want the convenience and user experience to know that the big company will look after them and they don't have to worry about these things. And that really was like eye-opening for me. I was like, okay. Web3, there are definitely some issues as well. Like I, there are people, mm. including me sometimes, who aren't willing to lose the convenience and the ease of use for the benefits of ownership and, and privacy. Definitely. And I th there's, a, there's also an element here of it's you know, it's convenience versus security. And if you haven't been burnt by a bad incident, then you don't know what it's yeah. like. You, you don't, you're, you're comparing convenience against inconvenience and there's no, there's no other, there's no other upside. And I, there's that obvious until until it happens to you um but i think you know that that's also a function of of it being early and these these still being quite freshly uh talked about problems they've only been in the public consciousness for quite a short amount of time and i think maybe as a final example of um you know this this, this, is, this isn't even necessarily web3 but just that people becoming more conscious of online security is the uptake in vpn use you know like Four, four or five years ago, I wouldn't have known what a VPN was, and no one. Sure, uh, sure thing. No one. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe, maybe my friends wouldn't. Um, <laughs> but the point is now it's they're so widely spread. Like I think you watch you watch any YouTuber, there's probably like a one in three chance that they'll be advertising a, a VPN subscription, and, and they've gone to the roof after things like Cambridge Analytica, where people are just, people are just more conscious about online security than they ever were i think and people being able to track you know things like your ip address so um yeah i think we've we've talked about an awful lot i think that's our longest first section on oh, the really? podcast so maybe <laughs> maybe it's a good chance to to take a little break okay welcome back so in the first half of this episode on data sovereignty and ownership, we talked about, you know, the evolution, why data ownership is so, has become so important, especially like in Web2 companies um, taking vast amounts of data, sometimes without user consent and using it in, in ways that, you know, maybe weren't prescribed. Um, the, the invention of GDPR to protect customers and consumers and, you know, some of the breaches and, and, and the effects of this and how this all fits in to the Web3 idea of kind of, you know, increase, increasing data ownership amongst consumers and impairing consumers with their, their, their data sovereignty. Um, so yeah, let's let's kick it off with a wee definition from ChatGPT. So ChatGPT, Jack's friend, defines data sovereignty is the concept that information is subject to the laws and governance structures within the nation it is collected. 
In essence, it's about the control and management of data. This includes where data is stored, how it is handled, who has access to it, and under what conditions it can be accessed or deleted. Well, that was a very formal voice I gave. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounded like it, uh, you were reading some some legal document, to be honest. It was, uh, <laughs> that, that definition felt like it could have been straight out of the GDPR legislation, right? It was very much focused on that. <laughs> well, you know, like some people have like, a, they have phone voices. I think I have a, a ChatGPT reading out voice. I wish I had any voice today, to be honest. <laughs> So yeah, what do you think of that definition? I think we've kind of covered a lot of that stuff, right? Yeah, I think I think we have covered. It. I think it, um, it it does seem kind of limited to the, uh, the the legal aspect that and looking at you know as you said at the start, like it being def, uh, located in a nation, like a uh, sovereignty being something that is um, quite tied to the country in which a data uh, some data is collected or used, which is a uh, which is interesting. I don't think it necessarily captures too much of the Web3 aspect, but I mean, it's, it's a pretty good definition, right? Yeah, I think so too. I think it's kind of quite simple. I think it's yeah, it's a, it's a bit more complicated than that, but we're trying to keep this, this fairly high level. I think, yeah, maybe now it would be interesting to go into some of the terms that are related to data sovereignty. Like we hear there's a lot of things, there's a lot of aspects. Um, I think one of the things that we've kind of talked about with them um, with data sovereignty is interoperability and I kind of want to kick off with this one because we talk about it so much right we've talked about it mm -hmm. I think in almost every episode so far it's probably as as crucial um to talk about as like data ownership is as well and I think you know, in, in my mind this is the the ability of different systems and applications to, to work together and exchange data you know in in, in ways that um, maintain user control and ownership. So it's all about that that portability. You know, if I well, you gave an example of uh, Tim Berners Lee and his, his project. There's another example that I was quite interested in. Is Jack Dorsey, you know, big guy created Twitter, um, now moving to this other project called Blue Sky, which is kind of like a, a social media base layer that that he wants to push, which is uh, kind of in line with the Web three model. And his whole thing was that we, you know, you push the kind of the, the data ownership to the users and that enables the users to take their data from application to application. So you imagine you have this layer underneath that kind of references and stores the the, the user data and they can just choose to move that data, you know, my Facebook profile, all the information associated with my Facebook profile, my pictures, my status, all that stuff. All of a sudden, I want to use something else instead of Facebook. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I just have that that kind of layer beneath that takes all the data to my Instagram profile, and I have one you know way to, to kind of port from place to place. And I think that's, a, that's an incredible project. And it's very exciting what he's doing right now. Yeah, I, I am also a big fan of that. I think uh, I think is is the is is moving in the right direction, and um, it, it's kind of tackling this idea that we mentioned previously of uh, platform lock in. So once mm. you know the stickiness of a, of a particular platform or social media um, site where it comes so hard to take your history with you, everything you've done, your reputation with you. And interoperability is definitely a big part of that because if if the data that, you know, creates your reputation, you know, your reputation being essentially the history of all the data you've you've created or, con or um, consumed on a platform, then being able to take that with you to a new platform and take the reputation with you, take the identity with you, that's all a, a case of interoperability. I mean... The other, a similar example, I don't know how similar it is technically, but have you heard of Mastodon? Oh, I feel like you've mentioned it in the pub before, maybe, which is, you know, <laughs> typical you. 
yeah um so it's it's like a federated social media system um mm. where again it all the data is meant to be interoperable with um different implementations so you could spin up different um front ends to serve the same data and the other interesting thing is it, it's doing something like you were saying with pushing data out to the, the endpoints so when i say federated it basically means that instead of having a, a twitter or a facebook running the site from uh, their, their their central database um uh, data centers instead mm. you have you have individuals spinning up their own servers and having kind of micro servers around the world where you know you and i could support a certain bit of the bandwidth on this site maybe for local data i th I, th I think there's a fascinating concept that will come in the future where people will, will will store data for people other people they know in like a community system um which is where oh, wow. i think mastodon and things like that are going now you're getting ahead of yourself i think now you're getting very ahead of yourself you're thinking yeah. 10 to 20 years ahead of the future you heard it here first you should copyright that i think um yeah one of the things you, you know we're talking about is interoperability and how it's like how i move my data from place a to place b and like how i mean that's all about shared standards and you know all that all that kind of stuff i think a big question around this this portability stuff that we're talking about is you know why would i as facebook who have in a way a monopoly on this data want you to have the ability to leave why would i want interoperability if i have you know 70% of the population working on my platform, why would I all of a sudden relinquish that control by saying, yeah, you can take your profile and all your stuff to, you know, Instagram. I know Instagram's part of Meta, but uh, to a different social media, competitive social media platform. Like it's a difficult one. Yeah, 100%. I think um, there is, there probably is very little incentive right now because of what we said as well. People people are aware of, of the problems with um, data aggregation and, and, and it being sold, but it's not stopping people really from using Twitter and Facebook um, mm -mm. and other platforms. So there's no incentive that they're not serving a big enough market demand probably by, yeah. by changing the model. It's it's still relatively fringe, I would say in, in, in global terms, this what we're talking about. But I do, I do feel like in the future, we will move to a place where um, platforms will try and compete in different ways and offering better privacy offering um, a better relationship with its users will be something that people will be willing to um, to either move platform for or um, yeah or, or, or start you know on differently I think that better privacy stuff is like it's still quite wishy-washy like I don't yeah. even I don't really care about that much but if a platform comes along and they say you know we'll give you money if you use our alternative to Facebook I'd be like yeah that makes sense so I think um one of the other things I know you want to talk about is around hashing and encryption. I mean, that's super related to this stuff, right? Yeah. And I think it's worth in this episode, just defining some of these terms because we have dropped them in before. And I think you know it's worth us saying what we mean by that. So when we talk about Web3 privacy, uh, ha hashing is one of the first tools that is used to preserve privacy. So if the blockchain is a public ledger, then any data you put on that is going to be by definition visible. So if you want to take advantage of the the, the proof of work put, being put into a blockchain, uh, the immutability of the data, because it's, a, it's an advantage to put the data there. Mm. It can't be changed. You can prove it hasn't changed. It has all these applications in data logging. It has applications in you know, proving things about yourself in, in the context of data ownership. So what hashing does essentially is it takes data. It could be very large. 
it condenses it into a very small uh, a very very small fingerprint of that data which is unique to to the input so we call them hashing functions you basically take mm. some input data you run it through the hashing function and you get this fingerprint and people can put that fingerprint on the blockchain as a way of, of proving that some data hasn't changed without exposing the data publicly so that's why it's, it's kind of one of these key privacy tools that, that we use in, in blockchain and web3 yeah so i think a good example of why someone want to do this is you know i have a certificate say you know i'm a university degree from whatever and the day i get that university degree i want to put that on the blockchain to prove you know on this day i receive my university degree and you know if my company says like you get a pay rise from the day that you can prove your university degrees on there i have that date logged on the blockchain but i don't want to say you know alec burns has an aerospace engineering degree from this university on this day so everyone in the world can see you know i might get torn apart by you know people like you jack who don't who don't appreciate aerospace engineering so i want to you know i want to cover that up i don't want people to see that raw data so you'd put it through a hashing algorithm like you were just explaining where the actual stuff on the blockchain doesn't mean anything to anyone apart from say me who i know who knows what the kind of the, the kind of the pre-data before that hashing algorithm was and anyone that i permission that mm. to so i can then say look this this gobbledygook effectively that's on chain at this date if i show you that you know my certificate directly relates to that information you know that information can't have changed was submitted on that date and now you know what that actually information actually means yeah and i think this is this is really crucial because i think hashing is almost hashing something and putting it on the blockchain is very similar to a definition I've heard of privacy. So what I've heard people say that privacy is essentially um, being able to prove something when it needs to be proved, or being able to reveal something when it needs to be revealed, but not before, or you know when you're asked. So uh. in the case of auditing, you know, it's not the case that you're if you're being audited as a company, you're not publishing the data all the time. You just yeah. reveal it to the auditor at the time. And that's exactly the same concept as hashing data and putting it on the blockchain in, in your case, right? You're you're preparing that degree certificate in, in a way that you can prove yeah. later down the line, but you don't want to you don't want to you don't want to reveal it in advance, essentially. I get so I you. Really I think in, in, so in software we call this like a backdoor type thing, right? That's a term that's kind of used, but yeah, exactly that. So Jack, what's the difference between hashing and encryption? Yeah, well, this is reminding me of our, our first episode. Or yeah, episode. same. <laughs> where, so you better get the definition right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, we erroneously said that um, some, the first Bitcoin block had an encrypted message in it. So hashing is a, this way of, of um, fingerprinting data, but you need the actual data to, to go back and connect it to the hash. You need to run it through the algorithm again to prove... Um, that it corresponds to the hash on chain. Encryption is where you take some data and you apply what's called a, uh, an encryption key uh, and you run that through an encryption algorithm. So you take the data, the key, you feed that into an encryption algorithm and out the other side, you get something called a ciphertext or an encrypted data packet. Mm. The interesting thing about an, an encrypted data packet is unlike a hash, it's not one way where you can only go from data to the hash encryption lets you go yeah. back from the encrypted data to the raw data. So if you have possession of the key, you can take the encrypted data, apply the um, uh, the key to it with the decryption function, which is the kind of inverse of the encryption function for, for, for kind of a, a simple way of thinking about it. And that allows you to, to read the data again. So that's another way that you can, you can achieve privacy on the blockchain if you want to use it for data and get that tamper-proof benefit is I'll take my data, I'll encrypt it, 
I'll put the ciphertext, the encrypted data on chain. So again, no one can read what that data is. It will be gobbledygook to anyone else unless mm. they have the private key um, to, to uh, the cryptographic key to decrypt that data again in, in the future. Got you. I'm surprised you used the term gobbledygook. I felt silly as soon as I said it, but I'm glad you did. So um, I, I like it. What are, so what are some of the differences between you know, instances where you prefer hashing versus encryption? Because they say, I know, you know, one's one way, the other was two way. So there must be like use cases that are very specific to each of them. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think it's a little bit philosophical when you think about in, of, of encryption, because we use encrypted data all the time. Like it, mm. it is the standard for all online communications. You, when you get that little padlock sign uh, at the top of your browser, um, mm -hmm. you may not notice it all the time, but you definitely notice it when you go to like online banking or something because it says mm -hmm. you've got a secure connection. And that secure connection is being secured because the packets you're exchanging from your computer and the server at the bank are encrypted. Um, and we, we basically, we are very confident that the encryption algorithms are robust. So that means that if you, if I give you the encrypted data packet, but I don't give you the key, then it's practically infeasible, you know, without without uh, ungodly amounts of power um, to, to to decrypt that and, and find out what the raw data is. And the encryption schemes that we use, they've been tested, they've been developed by places like uh, NIST in America, so the kind of um, the standards agency in America for cryptography. Mm -hmm. And these are subject to huge testing, uh, huge battle testing. So that the standard we use is called AES. Uh, AES now advanced encryption standard, and we trust that we and trust that acronym, online communications. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had to drop another one in, but we, we you trust can't help these yourself. algorithms. <laughs> no, um, FML. There we go. Uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm no, I get it. Now. I get it. And I think like a good example when you're talking earlier to link it back about you know some companies they don't want to store the raw data, they don't want to be liable. So imagine like. I'm want to communicate with you, but I want to communicate in a, in a web two kind of model where we go through a central server. Like you, I say, you know, hello, Jack, how you doing? All this kind of stuff, our usual kind of boring conversation. If I have to go through that central server, say the Facebook equivalent, they might have to store the rate raw data saying, hello, Jack, how you doing? Like, and then pass it on to you. There's PII mm -hmm. there. They're saying they know that Alec is sending a message to someone called Jack and they know the message contains Jack and hashing wouldn't really get around that by me sending a hash to you because you need to have that original message for it to mean anything. Right. Whereas exactly. like encryption, if you have if you and I, for some reason, have, we talk a lot, which which we don't inside this podcast, have a, an encryption and decryption key. I could encrypt my message and say, hello, Jack, how are you doing? Encrypt it. It means nothing. It's gobbledygook. I send it through the Facebook equivalent, the central server. They have no idea what that message means. There's potentially no identifying PII, identifying information in there now. They pass on the encrypted message to Jack without any liability on their end. And then Jack gets this gobbledygook and he gets the de he has the decryption key already. He uses that and he gets, hey, Jack, how are you? And he gets very happy that made his day and there's no liability and everyone's, everyone's good. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think... To kind of summarize, the difference would be um, with encrypted data, you have more functionality because if I can see the encrypted data, I can decrypt it if someone gives me the key. So if mm -hmm. I put an encrypted data packet on the blockchain, then I could give you the key and you could decrypt it. Whereas if I put the hash on the blockchain, I'd have to give you the raw data and that might be very large. So one reason you might do that is for efficiency reasons. 
it might be more efficient for me to transmit you a single cryptographic key, which is very, very small, um, and then ask you to go and download the data yourself and decrypt it rather than me sending you the whole you know, gigabyte or two gigabyte file or something. Um, but yeah, in my mind, both hashing and encryption, they both rely on certain assumptions mm -hmm. about the security and what the ones we use currently are incredibly secure. Although one thing to bear in mind is that for, for both cases, really, um, standards change over time. So AES, the encryption standard we use, is not the one we've always used. We used to use one called DES. Um, mm. uh, I can't remember what the D stands for now. But the idea being, eventually, we won't use AES anymore. We'll use a more advanced crypto encryption standard. Um, when we when we have fully fledged, if we ever have fully fledged things like quantum computing, we'll need a quantum resistant um, oh, yeah. encryption scheme. So if you put data on the blockchain using today's scheme, it probably will be fine for the next, well, don't, don't quote me on this, but 15, 20 years at least. But at some point, the standards will move on and then it might become more more high risk. So. If we if we go fifteen years and uh, on this podcast and quantum computing is broken broken it, I, I'm going to come back to you and link it back to this episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think maybe we, we we've spoken quite a long time already today, which is I don't know how it's gone so quickly for the, potentially a dry <laughs> a dry topic. But I was going to ask: Are there do you have any examples of people achieving or trying to achieve? data sovereignty and ownership in practice, like any any examples of it happening um, that, the, the, that are particularly interesting for you? I think like, it, I love this, I love social media. Like I think, as in I love using social media as an example of how, how important Web3 is. And I think we've talked about it a fair bit, so I don't wanna spend too long on it, but essentially, you know, Web2 social media platforms like Facebook, they have control over your data. If you, you know, if you decide to delete your account, you lose access to all your posts, photos, messages, all that kind of stuff. And I think I want to imagine projects like Jack Dorsey's Blue Sky project, where he's thinking about the, the Web3 based social media platforms, where in this model, you own your data, not the platform. So when you know you post a photo or a status update, that data is, is stored in a way that you control. I think in, in the blue skies, it was basically in a distributed file storage system, which, you know, we can talk about another time. So you get to see, you get to see who sees your data, who sees that photo and under what conditions. And if a company wants to use that, you know, use your data for advertising or mm. kind of, I don't know, sell to other people, um, they would have to get your permission to use it and potentially, you know, even pay you. And if you decide to leave that platform, you could take that data with you and move it to a different platform. And that's part of the, the blue sky model. And I think, you know, the shift in, in data ownership it's going to, well, it is inevitably going to lead to more privacy and better control over personal data. Um, you know, you're no longer the product, but but instead, you know, you're being sold to, to these advertisers. You become like an active participant in in mm. how your data is used and who profits from from that data. And that, for me, that's one of like the best examples of, of how this mm. could be applied. What about you, Jack? Well, what are you thinking? Well, well, before I say mine, I think I'm kind of interested because this stuff is being built now. Um uh, you know, it's in various stages, but I'm kind of curious what what do you think would tip you over into making the jump? Right? Would it be would it be something like um, a platform with no advertising that you can achieve like with this? Or because I was also thinking, for me, I think it would be you'd have to have it tied to some bigger identity system where it's not just it's not just uh, one social media platform I can use and, and move between, but maybe. 
I can link my social media with my other credentials and my national identity and all that is mm. potentially further away. But I'm curious what would be like the the biggest driver for you to, to, to move over. I think like I like the idea of monetization. I think if I could be incentivized for for using it, that would be a big thing for me. But man, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm a sheep. I think I think it's all about network theory. Uh, and, you know, as soon as there's enough people who are on there using it, I would just jump ship. Like, I don't, I don't think I use social media that much right now, but it is mostly to talk to friends. Like, I, I think I'm quite light touch in that sense. But I think as soon as that happens, you know, I had a few friends who are using it, I would just jump then basically, which is not ideal because someone's going to be the first mover, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, so the main message is just be a sheep and no, follow the stuff, but <laughs> Always be a sheep. <laughs> it's true. That it's true. I mean, it, especially with social media, I think it's, uh, yeah, network effects. That's that's going to be a, a slow march of adoption. But, you know, mm. I'm sure we'll get there at some point. So what about you? Have you got any favorite real world applications for this? So, I mean, I have I have an example of um, seeing this move to data sovereignty and it's not I, I don't think it's really a web3 example but i think it's a very powerful one so do you remember when apple i think in 2021 it was when they introduced their new um privacy tracking policy do you remember this no are you an apple user uh i am not i'm a samsung user ah yeah. okay okay so you're you remember you're one i of the... work in tech <laughs> So you're you're like the guys who are using Yahoo in 2013. How dare you, sir? Okay, let, let me fill you in. Um, because yeah, that explains. You would definitely have noticed this, I think, if uh, if you're an Apple user. So they they introduced this this um, policy on their apps where whenever you download an app um, or whenever there's an update, I think as well, the app has to ask you whether it can track you. So it literally pops up and it says, mm. um, you know do you allow this app to track you so how often do you think i i say yes you know very very infrequently um and, and in addition to that you know that's kind of act actively stopping tracking and that it now also tells you in the app store exactly what data is collected by each app wow. so, so you know and the, the kind of the bit what, what happened here is that this completely changed things for facebook so this is 2021 it mm. kind of started destroying their advertising model because of this whole data broker aspect, this data mm. aggregation aspect. They were really relying on the cross-site tracking, the tracking you through different apps and things. Yeah, so yeah. as soon as people started saying no, their advertising model, the quality went, went straight down. And people, there was there was a prediction I saw that it was going to cost them something like 12 billion in revenue. Oh my God. And then, you know, what happens six, nine months later in 2021 is Facebook fully pivot to, the metaverse you know they, they're kind of changing their business model so it was that powerful apple making this one change um so yeah i think that's that for me that's the biggest thing that's happened in, in data privacy and sovereignty in, in a long time that is so interesting i can't believe i didn't hear about that so now i am adamant you need to read chaos monkeys because it's about the decision okay. they start to go like cross-platform advertising and selling like user kind of data to other other people outside of the Facebook, it, it's, it's crazy. Like it really is. You mm -hmm. need to read it. It's so incredible. That's yeah. That's an okay. exciting one. I will do. Well, that, that's a that's a good recommendation to uh, to end on maybe. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think I think I've said all I want to say about data sovereignty for one day. There's plenty more for a future episode. I think.
Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, some of the main things for me about like concerns and considerations about data sovereignty, we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, the additional responsibility, the UX versus convenience, do people want these things? And I think a big thing that you just touched on to end with was how do companies fit into this? What are the new economic models for companies like Facebook in, in this kind of in this new world where they don't have complete ownership of users data? I think that's a big topic. And I think we could spend a whole nother episode speaking about that. I think, yeah, that's a good place to end. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions and comments on social media and be sure to follow us on your favourite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.